he also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you guys. My name is Troy. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, there's way more of you here at, at this hour than at 8.15. Weird, huh? Um, is anybody else still lagging from the time change last week? Yeah? One guy. All right. Okay. I'm here by myself. Just I'm all jacked up on Mountain Dew. I need all the help I can get. And we're in the middle of this series on Jesus the storyteller. Jesus is the master teacher. Jesus handles these unbelievably timeless stories in such a beautiful way. When I was a kid, I learned that the parables of Jesus were these earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. And they're these things that are so transcendent that you kind of, you learn them and you, you turn them and you observe them from all these different angles. There's so many layers to the parables of Jesus. And so today we're going to be talking about the parable of the shrewd manager, right? The shrewd manager who, who works for a rich man, as you saw in our bumper here. Now, speaking of rich men, Okay, anybody familiar with a guy named Elon Musk? Elon Musk, yeah. So he's a fairly wealthy guy. Apparently, he sold this organization called PayPal a long time ago, made a ton of money, started a little car company called Tesla, uh, SpaceX. He's got all these different enterprises, and he decides he wants to be a social media mogul. So he's got a little pocket change of $44 billion, and he purchases Twitter. 
which is a social media company. He buys Twitter after all this, you know, haggling and back and forth and everything. Finally, he finalizes the sale and buys Twitter. It's actually his. He owns it. And check out this picture over here. Yeah, okay, so he's actually carrying a sink. And the caption says, entering Twitter headquarters, let that sink in. Come on, that's pretty funny. Okay, Elon is not shying away from a good sight gag. And what he's saying here is there's a new sheriff in town, right? I have, he's reserved the right to determine the direction, the character, the nature of Twitter, the things that it's going to do, things it's not going to do. What is Twitter going to be? He bought it, it's his, and there's a new sheriff in town. And he said, this is the way things are gonna go. So Elon is this rich man. He's got all these people working for him. Then there's all these other vendors and advertisers and users of Twitter. And that's kind of like the nature of that enterprise. Now we come over to Jesus, and Jesus' primary message when he, he came to earth, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is near, right? Kingdom, it's, 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 uh, it's this way of putting these two words together, king and dominion, kingdom, the kingdom of God is near. And why was the kingdom of God near? Because the king, Jesus, had come near. He got close to us. He brought it close. He, he teaches us about the availability of the kingdom of God to everybody. And what is the nature? What is the character? What's it like to be inside the kingdom of God? Now, as we talk about these parables that Jesus teaches, we go to the book of Luke, chapter 15 and 16. And he gives us these three little parables here to tell us something about what is the nature of the treasure in the kingdom. Because kingdoms have treasure, right? If you have a kingdom that's got assets, it's got things that are valuable to it. And Jesus is going to tell us something about what is valuable, what is the treasure in the kingdom where he is the king. So he tells these three stories, one about a shepherd, one about a coin, and one about a son. And there's a shepherd who's got 100 sheep. And one of those sheep guys toddles off and goes off into the distance. And the shepherd is concerned because that sheep is bound to get eaten by a wolf or something. So he takes off, leaves the 99, goes to find that sheep that ran off, right? And he brings it back. And what does he do? He throws a party because he brought the sheep safely back home. And then there's a widow. And she loses this coin, and it's, she's absolutely panicked, right? And she turns her house upside down looking for this coin that's so important to her. And when she finds it, she rejoices, and she throws a party. And there's a son and a father and a family and a community. And this son decides that he, he doesn't want anything to do with anybody else anymore. And he gets his inheritance, and he takes off. And he takes off in such a way that they don't even know. They don't know where he went. They don't even know if he's alive or he's dead. He goes off. He takes his wealth, and he squanders it. He wrecks his life. And he comes back home. And his father sees him coming from a distance. And he sees him coming down the road, and his father runs out to him. Instead of wagging his finger at him saying, I told you so. I knew this was going to happen. He embraces him. And he celebrates because he says, my son was dead, and now he's alive. He's lost, and he is found. These parables tell us something about what is the treasure in the kingdom where Jesus is the king. So ultimately, the character of the kingdom reflects the character of the king. And when Jesus says, hey, repent, turn away from these earthly kingdoms, turn away from your own kingdoms, turn away from all these other ways of doing things, and turn towards my kingdom because there's a new sheriff in town. There's a better king that has come. Let that sink in. Now, we go back to our parable here, right? This is from Luke chapter 16, and we saw that in the video, but I want to read it here and just kind of 
give you a little bit of a commentary as we go along, okay? So, first one here, Luke 16, 1 through 9. There was a rich man, let's call him Elon, shall we? Whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So we called him in and asked him, uh, what is this I hear about you? Um, give, give an account of your, your management because uh, you cannot be my manager um, any longer. Stop, you guys. You're so, you're so flattering. That was Elon Musk, by the way. That was... I wore my Elon outfit today and everything. It's just, you should be impressed, okay? Um, so the rich man, I'm gonna get in so much trouble for this. I'll be freshening up my resume tomorrow. Um, so he said, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. And the manager said to himself, uh-oh, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. Right? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. It's interesting that digging was the first option that he has, right? I would think McDonald's or something. But I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much uh, do you owe my master? And the first one says, 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down, and quickly make it 450 so he cuts the debt in half, right? Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. And then he told him, take your bill and make it 800. So he reduces that by 20%. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. So I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings, okay? So at the start of this parable, <laughs> there are three unhappy groups of people, okay? You've got the owner, the rich man. He's not happy because he's not being represented well. And apparently, his, the resources that he has divested to this middle manager guy are being misused. Somehow, they're not being handled well, and it's creating problems in his business. Then, so owner's not happy. The manager's not happy because he's caught red-handed, right? He got called out, and now suddenly he's like, he's on the verge of getting fired. He's gonna be out on his keister pretty soon unless he figures something out. And then you got debtors, and the debtors are unhappy because they owe more than they think they should owe. And their relationship with this organization, with this enterprise is somehow strained, right? So you got an owner, you got managers and debtors. Nobody is happy here. Now, what most of the commentators will tell you when you read this parable, they'll say that what this manager did was he wrote off his own fee, his own commission. Because otherwise, why would the owner commend him and applaud him for stealing from him? Okay, does that make sense? So it's not like he, he took these things and he used the manager's resources dishonestly so he could get some attention or some affection from these people. He's saying he took his commission, right, 50 or 50%, of that initial cost, he writes it off, right? That's probably because he was overcharging these people. His commission, his fees, the way he was handling these debtors was not fair. It was not kind. He was overcharging them, and they were probably stuck because they didn't have anywhere else to go. So he cuts those down. He takes his fee out of it, and everybody is happy. 
Okay, you've got uh, the manager making friends, right? So there's a transformation with these three groups of people, right? You have a happy owner now. The owner is happy because now his business is going well. His manager is handling things in an honest way, in a way that reflects his heart, his values, the direction he wants the organization to go. The manager is happy because guess what? He gets to keep his job and he actually gets applauded by the owner for doing things wisely. And then you've got happy debtors because frankly, they owe less. And they're stoked because, so everybody is happy. And these debtors that owes all this money, all these resources to this enterprise now have this new affection, a new loyalty to the organization owned by the rich man. So everyone is happy because the manager served the owner and the debtors over himself. Okay, so we've been talking kind of like this business metaphor. You've got your Elon Musk and Twitter and managers and advertisers and users and all these people that are involved in this enterprise. And what I want to do for a second is I want to shift the metaphor, okay? So instead of a business, we're talking about a kingdom. And if we have a kingdom, right, that would be the enterprise. We have a king. And this kingdom, we're talking about Jesus is the king. And you and I are kingdom managers, we're coming under the authority of, with the values of, the direction, the priorities of the king of the kingdom. And then you have people who are both inside and outside the kingdom that we are in relationship with, we are in interaction with. And Jesus is going to tell us something about how do we handle this dynamic, this responsibility that we've been given. So the king, Jesus himself, has divested responsibility to you and I, resources, responsibilities, and opportunities. It's a gift that he's given to us. And we have this thing, we have possessions, and then a perspective that he wants us to have on these possessions. So one, the first possession is you and I have a heart. Okay? The heart is that thing in you that makes decisions. It's that thing that when you, whatever you point your heart towards, that's where the rest of your life goes. It's a powerful thing in your life. And it's not very smart. And it's highly influenced by lots of other things. And Jesus is saying, you have a heart. This is one of the possessions that you have, and it's extremely powerful. And next, you possess responsibilities. right? The things that are in your hand today, maybe it's your homework at school. Maybe it's the way you handle your, the interaction with people at the Starbucks. Maybe it's your business. Maybe it's your education. Maybe it's your family. But you have, for a season here, been given an opportunity and responsibilities that are in your hand, and the way you handle these things is going to determine what you can handle next. And then the next thing that you possess is temporary treasure. <laughs> this is the stuff of life. Right? This is what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, what you're going uh, to buy, where you're going to live. It's all those kind of things that come and go. Right? It's that material stuff of life, and we're calling that temporary treasure. And Jesus is saying in his kingdom, we can have a certain perspective on the things that we possess. So if we're talking about you possessing a heart, here's the deal. Love is the heart of the kingdom. Right In 1 John, it says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
this a uniquely Christian claim in all the worldviews and religions in history that God is not just loving, he is not just kind and compassionate, right? That God is the, in his essence, he is the embodiment of love. And in the kingdom where Jesus is king, the heart of that kingdom is love. And he's asking us to turn our hearts in that direction. You possess responsibility, right? Here's the perspective on that. The resources are not yours. The responsibility you've been gifted with is a grace. It is a gift. It's not yours, right? You and I have, we have minds and we have bodies and we have the capacity to think and to work and to act and to do all of these things, right? And we have to understand that even our ability to work and to create and maybe earn a living are all gifts. They're all graces that God has gifted us with. And you have these responsibilities that are in your hand today. And you, maybe you earned it, maybe you didn't earn it, but God has gifted you with the capacity to manage those things. The resources are not your own. And next, you possess temporary treasure. But what we do is we exchange temporary treasure for kingdom treasure. In the kingdom where Jesus is the king, just like Elon Musk, he gets to determine what is valuable, what is the treasure of the kingdom. And where Jesus is king, people are the treasure of King Jesus. It says this in Romans chapter five, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know the value of something by what someone else is willing to pay for it, what they're willing to offer up. Jesus gives everything for you and I that while we were in rebellion, while we had turned our backs on him, while we said, I don't want life with you, I want life without you. He pays the ultimate price to draw us to himself to make his kingdom accessible to everyone, including you and I who've rebelled against him. And then when he's done that, and when we enter into that kingdom, he asks us to reflect his heart. So what does it say in 1 John 4? We love because he first loved us. When we realize that it's all a grace and that it's all a gift and his love has overpowered our sin when we surrender to him, and he's saying, now, that love that I have gifted you, I want you to take that and I want you to turn it out to everybody else. We love because he first loved us. This is the dynamic. This is the value in the kingdom where Jesus is the king. And he's asking us to see all of these resources and opportunities and responsibilities through the lens of eternal treasure. He's saying, take that heart, that powerful prime mover in your personality and turn it towards me. Turn it away from all the temporary, short-lived, unenduring, undurable, fragile kingdoms of this world and the kingdom that you are trying to build for yourself and you say, there's a better way. There's a better kingdom. And you turn your heart in the direction of the one true king and surrender that thing to him. We have this, this eternal treasure and then he's asking us then to take the opportunities and to wisely manage them, to manage them in a way that reflects his heart and his direction and his values. Now, there's a, there's a gentleman who had been in our church for a very long time. His name is Bob Hodgson, and he just passed away just a couple of months ago, and we had just really had a beautiful, wonderful service to honor this man who, more than most people, really understood this idea of 
the, the responsibilities and the gifts and the graces that he had in life were to be navigated and managed in a way that honored the heart of the king. He saw the stuff of life through this kingdom lens. And for Bob, there wasn't this like sacred, secular division. You know, I've got like my church stuff and then I've got like my religious stuff. For Bob, it was all sacred. It was all spiritual. There was no kind of false dichotomy in the way he looked at the opportunities that God had given to him. And everything was sacred for Bob. And we got to see him grow and mature into this way of living because he was part of Westside for a very long time. And he was part of our leadership team. And he served here in so many ways. He was one of these guys that always had a smile on his face. Can we see a picture of Bob here? Yeah. Okay, that's a good dog right there. I don't care who you are. I love labs. And Bob had a smile on his face. He was a humble man. He had a servant's heart. He was a guy who always had a, like a, he had a crate full of Bibles in the trunk of his car. You know, because you never know when you might want to offer one to somebody else, right? This remarkable man was also extraordinarily successful as a businessman. And his son um, wrote me a letter to kind of give me a sense of what was his journey like? How did he become this kingdom-minded, very successful man? And this is what his son Chris says. I think dad's generosity story originated after he became a newborn Christian in 1977. In 1990... He read a book by Larry Burkett, a highly respected Christian financial counselor, founder of Crown Financial Ministries and National Christian Foundation. And the book is called Business by the Book, where he proposed that Christians should operate in the marketplace according to God's plan for his people. Dad was particularly interested in the part about God owns everything, including the family business. <laughs> As a result of taking this book to heart and honoring God, Dad pushed his business partner and brother, J.B. Hodgson, to establish tithing for the company. And in 1997, this became a reality, and the business has grown significantly ever since. In addition, Dad pushed again for profit sharing with the employees, and without his insistence, this would not have happened. As a result, the company Tithing the Family Foundation has grown to support over 450 ministries and organizations. Bob understood that everything was a gift, <laughs> that he had been gifted with these opportunities and responsibilities and resources, and he started to be able to see all of that through the lens of what would Jesus do were he in my place? How would Jesus manage this were he in my shoes. And it doesn't matter if you're 16 years old or you're 60 years old. It doesn't matter if you got 10 bucks or you got a million dollars. The question is, what is in your hand today? What is the responsibility that you've been given? And how can we see that thing, however small, however large, through the lens of how would Jesus handle it were he sitting in your seat? Were he walking in your shoes? Were we sitting in your chair at school or at the office or at the Starbucks? Or were he working out at the gym where you're working out? How would Jesus, in what manner would Jesus do this thing that you have been given to do? How do you honor his heart and his values? How do you just finally realize that he's a better king than you are? He's a better king than I am for sure. And you gotta understand, once we finally realize that he's a better king, there was so much freedom to be had because there's freedom when you realize you aren't the king, right? You have freedom from failure, freedom from bearing the weight of your own kingdom by yourself, especially when it fails. Because as a citizen of God's kingdom, instead of being destroyed 
when our, our enterprise fails, we're made better. We grow. It can be redeemed because that's what Jesus does. It's that divine jujitsu. When the enemy wants to take and, and insert tragedy in your life, insert failure in your life, it's only when we surrender to those failures, those tragedies, those losses to the good king who knows you and loves you better than you know and love yourself that he turns it on his head and he takes ashes and turns it into something beautiful, something redeeming, something better. That's why Jesus is a better king than you and I are. You get freedom from slavery to the stuff of life, you know? All the external things like your bank account, what are you gonna wear, what you're gonna eat, where you're gonna go, what car are you gonna drive, what neighborhood are you gonna live, who are you gonna marry, what all these, all these things that we're so consumed with. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to be defined by those things anymore. You're not defined by your bank account. You're not defined by the success of your business. You're not defined by what your neighbors think about your yard. You're not defined by anything Outside, what you're defined by is you are a child of the king. And what's true about you and what defines you is what he says about you and not by the stuff of life and not by other people's opinions and not even by how you feel about things today or tomorrow. That's freedom. And ultimately, it's freedom to live abundantly in God's kingdom <laughs> where Jesus is the king. And he's a better king than you and I are. And this is when you have a king who is actually for you, who actually wants to see you thrive and flourish, who actually has compassion for you, who understands who you are, how you're wired, and he's got plans for you, and he wants to do something for you and in you beyond anything that you've ever imagined. Jesus wants to do something for you. He's not trying to take things from you. He's not a world leader. He's not a prime minister or a president or a czar or a, you know, a general somewhere that are just using you to sustain their position. He's trying to give you something better than you can give yourself. He's trying to do something better for you than you could possibly do for yourself. And we no longer are defined by the world around us. We're defined by being children of the king. In God's kingdom, in God's economy, do not fail. And he has made it available to you and to me. That's abundance of life. We're not talking about abundance of stuff, right? We're not talking about, I mean, Jesus makes your life better. I'm convinced of this. I know this to be a fact. If you will commit yourself to him to follow him, to be his disciple, to live life as he would live it if he were in your shoes, learning to just enjoy the abundance of his kingdom, your life is gonna be better. Now, better isn't necessarily easier, Better isn't necessarily harder, but better is better because it's an abundance of faith and hope and love. It's an abundance of peace and contentment and joy that transcends your circumstances today. It's a meaning and a purpose that organizes the whole of your life in the most redeeming, winsome, beautiful way. That's why Jesus is a better king. And that's what he's trying to give to you and I. So he says it like this in Matthew chapter six, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. He's saying, look, 
understand that you're not the king anymore. You and I are grace managers. We are kingdom managers. And when we finally figure that out and we operate in a way that honors him, we seek first his kingdom in a way that honors his character and his direction, his principles, his love, all the other stuff of life that we're so concerned about, that just kind of comes with the territory. They don't consume us and they don't define us anymore because something better organizes the whole of our lives. Like the shrewd manager, when we make God's business, that is his kingdom, our endeavor, everybody wins. (laughs) And it's where the character of Jesus is reflected in the way that you and I live this life in his kingdom. So it says this in Colossians chapter three, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything that you do with a heart of gratitude in the name of Jesus. When you do something in the name of Jesus, it's not like this magical thing you put at the end of the prayer that just gonna make sure you get what you want. To do something in the name of Jesus is to do it in submission to him, in alignment with his heart and his values, his desires, his kingdom come, his will be done over my kingdom coming and my will being done. It's surrendering to something better. It's surrendering to a better king. It's understanding that whatever we do, we do in submission to him, in alignment with him, somebody who is more pure and more good and more loving than we are at this point in the journey. And then we do it in the way he would do it were he in our place. See, when the the manager in our parable, when he did everything his way, guess what? Everybody lost. Everybody was unhappy. But when he finally did it in a way that honored the owner and served the debtors, everybody won, including himself. It's the difference between temporary and eternal. And you and I, we have a choice. You've been divested responsibility in this life, opportunity, resources, the stuff of life, the decisions you're gonna make, the direction you're gonna take in the future. These are all gifts that have been given to you by God. What are you gonna do? Are you gonna serve yourself with it? Are you gonna do it in the way? Are you gonna build your little kingdom? Or are you gonna try to manage that responsibility, that opportunity in a way that honors the giver, the one who graced you with this life? So in a moment here, we're gonna take communion. So you might wanna get out these cups and start to navigate your communables. Um, (laughs) They're challenging at times. And with Jesus' message, he said that the kingdom of God has come near. He's saying the kingdom of God is now available to you. Through the work of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, it opens the door for us to enter into his kingdom where he is the king. And he goes up with his disciples on their last night together and he takes this Passover meal and he redefines it forever for them. And he takes this bread and he breaks it. Not unlike breaking the bread for 5,000 people in a hot afternoon. He says, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat.
takes a cup and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood, a new arrangement, a new deal, a new way of organizing your life around what God has done for you. And this kingdom where the good king has come near is now available to you. And you can access the character of that kingdom through the forgiveness of your sin, through the good work of Jesus. Take and drink. So God, we come to you right now. We just say, thank you. Thank you that you've invited us into something better. (laughs) Something so much better. You've invited us into abundance of life and hope and purpose that transcends all of our hurts, that transcends all the tragedies and the circumstances that happen in and to and around us, God. And you're saying, come into my kingdom. Come into a kingdom that is more durable than your own. And let me bless you. Let me work in your heart. Let me change you from the inside out. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your kingdom come. In your great name we pray.